The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio. Thank you so much for joining us, everybody, and thanks to our guests for joining us as well. This uh, episode is actually part two of an episode that we did last week. Uh, we are talking with Phyllis Catino, director of the Pew Charitable Trust Clean Energy Program, and Dexter Gauntlet. He's a research analyst for Pike Research. And just last week, they released a study called Innovate, Manufacture, Compete, a Clean Energy Action Plan. And it's really way beyond the typical kumbaya, let's save the planet rationale for renewable energy and energy policy. It goes beyond uh, all of those good reasons and and goes into the business case for why the United States needs good energy policy in order to compete in what is truly a burgeoning global market for renewable energy. So I want to welcome Phyllis first. Welcome to Go Green Radio again, Phyllis. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on again. Well, and Dexter, thanks for joining us as well. Uh, you did a lot of the research for this uh, for this report. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. The team at Pike Research put it together. All right. Well, I want to get into some specifics, Phyllis. Um, You know, the Pew Clean Energy Program has done a lot of great work in terms of public policy. Uh, You know, you just had a big win last year by helping to maintain some of the military's biofuel standards. Um, What, with this report, what are some of the specific attainable long-term energy goals that you're recommending that the U.S. government adopt that would be most beneficial? to the clean energy sector. Mm-hmm. Well, with this report, I think it, it's a little bit different. What we did in this report was we not only did, um, you know, we contracted with Pike Research, who's our research partner, very happy to be working with them on this report, to, to really look at the size and the scope of the opportunity in terms of uh, private investment revenues and the amount of gigawatts that would be installed from a 2012 to a 2018 time period. And, you know, we have done research in the past that's really looked at the amount of private investment going into this area. Um, the sector of the global economy. We know it's grown 600% if you exclude R&D since 2004. But this report also, what we did for this report is we went out and we really convened business leaders, industry experts all around the country. So we talked to financiers in New York. We talked to, to manufacturers in Ohio. We talked to innovators in Colorado. We talked to solar and biomass developers in Georgia and, and in Mississippi. And, of course, we ended up with an inside-the-beltway talk with our own Clean Energy Business Network, which is nationwide. So 
the recommendations in this report are really industry's perspective on what they believe the government should really, what, what policies they are recommending that the government put in place to enable them to be more competitive in the global marketplace because we are undergoing a time, we're seeing a time of fierce competition with lots of actors getting in and businesses getting involved in this sector because they do see it as an opportunity, not just here in the United States, but around the world. And so they really had six recommendations um, that we have kind of that our report goes through. And I'll just run down those quickly because I know I'm talking sure. a lot here. Um, no, but please provi- feel free because this is this is the the meat and potatoes of the report. So please do. Sure. So first, they really wanted to have um, pol- they wanted the, the government to, to lay down kind of long term NSC policy goals and objectives so that they could have market certainty. And, you know, their point to us time and time again was this uncertainty about, you know, uh, where energy policy is going in the United States is really hampering us. It's really holding us back. It's really, you know, it keeps private capital on the, on the, on the sidelines, and we're not able to invest and plan for the future. So they really wanted a long-term energy uh, policy put in place, and for them, one of the first things that they would point to is a clean energy standard. So some indication that we are going to, in this country, get a percentage of our electricity from efficiency, a percentage of our electricity from renewables. Um, you know, And they said, frankly, this ought to be very broadly based. It could include nuclear and natural gas from their perspectives. Um, it might include you know, CCS, clean coal. But they really wanted carbon capture and sequestration, but they really wanted to have some long-term policy so they could plan. Mm-hmm. The other thing they said very clearly is, look, we need to invest in U.S. energy innovation. We, we have created so, invented so many of the technologies that are being manufactured around the world today. And we need to keep our edge, and the way to do that is to really almost triple the size of the energy R&D budget. And what that means, that what that would mean is kind of more investment in labs, more investment in these hubs, helping the labs really help industry, invite them in, and kind of push out costs and, and make them more productive. So they really felt investing in inter- energy innovation was key. Um, the third thing they suggested to us was reinforce incentives for private investment. So, you know, when it comes, for instance, to the tax code, to, you know, we've had a conversation on our last show about the production tax credit, and I'm sure it's something you've talked about in other shows, you know, we need to enable um, the private sector to understand that this, you know, tax incentive is going to be in place so that they can invest, you know, particularly at a time when we're having budget austerity in Washington, D.C., you know, incentivizing private investment is really smart. The other thing they said to us fourth was, look, we have all kinds of barriers to entry. You need to do something to level the playing field. Government needs to, to, to level the playing field so that technologies that have had preference, you know, we've had tax incentives for, for oil and gas for 100 years that are permanent in the tax code. We have, you know, a permanent uh, tax incentive that has been in place for 50 years for nuclear power. We really either, we need to kind of treat all technologies in the same manner. So if there are permanent incentives for, for those industries, there ought to be a permanent incentive for ours if there are, you know, or, or do other things to kind of level the playing field, take away those incentives, whatever it is, just do something that breaks down barriers for us um, and, you know, do things that would promote both consumer, better consumer choice and competition among technologies. 
Mm-hmm. The other thing they, they, they said, the fifth thing they said is support American manufacturing. So there was a very popular advanced energy manufacturing tax credit um, that has also expired. It provided a 30% tax incentive. This is something that they felt desperately we should really do something about. That should be, um, you know, that should be reinstated in Congress. It was oversubscribed. It was really the source of 17,000 jobs spread across 43 states in more than 180 manufacturing facilities. Very successful, things like that really need to be supported. And then finally, expand markets for U.S. goods and services abroad. And there have been quite a number of successful programs, whether it's the Export-Import Bank or um, uh, the Department of Commerce that has undertaken. So do more things like that to really expand markets for U.S. companies. So those are the six things that industry suggested to us. Phew! I've been talking for a long time now. So No, that was great, Phyllis. And I think it gives us a really good background for asking some of the more specific questions. And Dexter, I'm going to turn to you. Um, when it comes to energy goals that are recommended, not just by industry, because of course, you know, they're going to say, buy as much solar, buy as much wind as you possibly can. Uh, what does the research show that our, our specific renewable energy goals by numbers should be? Well, it's really just a, a matter of choice. And so uh, we covered some of this last week, but the uh, main tool that states have taken in the absence of federal leadership has been to enact renewable energy targets or renewable portfolio standards. And so what that means is that by a certain date, uh, a state or utilities with operating within a state uh, must uh, acquire a certain percentage of their portfolio to be renewables. And so uh, some of the leading states are uh, California, which has a 33% renewable uh, portfolio standard by 2020. Uh, Oregon has a 25% renewable portfolio standard by 2025. Uh, so, you know, in the U.S., like, even though there is a uh, uh, absence of federal leadership, there's 31 states, I think now that have renewable energy targets or some sort of renewable portfolio um, goal. So uh, it is happening here, and uh, many of these states are going to actually achieve or exceed those goals, and uh, it's, it's exciting to see. Well, it is exciting, and, and hopefully we'll be able to start seeing some, um, you know, some standardization of those goals. Um, perhaps, you know, sometimes people look to California as a leader in that, sometimes not. You know, it, there's one aspect that I find pretty fascinating, and, and I'd like for you, both Phyllis and Dexter, to talk about this. When it comes to financing, uh, you know, there are costs associated with traditional forms of energy that are not necessarily reflected in their market price, like healthcare costs associated with air pollution around refineries and coal plants, um, the cost of deploying our Navy. I mentioned last week that I'm a former naval officer and deploying our Navy to keep oil moving through the Strait of Hormuz and the Suez Canal. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we really don't talk about the cost of the clean water that's needed to generate steam in some of the traditional power plants. If all these costs were taken into account, how would the true cost of traditional energy stack up to the true cost of clean energy? Well, I don't know, if Dexter, if you have some empirical data on on that question, but... You know, and the prices of wind and solar and other renewable energy technologies are dropping very quickly, and 
Um, there are kind of many experts, and I'd be interested in Dexter's particular insight on this, um, envision that, that uh, renewable energy will be cost competitive within the decade. Um, and certainly, if you priced externalities, if you priced the cost of air and water and kind of even um, even national security, they'd be cost competitive right now. And that's certainly something that we heard from time and time again from, you know, the folks that we talked to, the industry folks that they talked to about kind of yet again, this is another barrier um, that they have found with, when you don't cost these things out. So, but Dexter? Yeah, on, if, uh, all of those things are true, and that's, uh, you know, a common, uh, you know, an increasingly common aspect of this, the, uh, not only the environmental, but health and social costs as well. Uh, the only study that uh, I know of that uh, the Harvard Medical School put together trying to calculate the full cost of coal uh, from a life cycle per- perspective, so ex- including things like exploration, transportation, processing, burning, etc., um, is that the figure they came up with was uh, between 300 and $500 billion annually. So, uh, you know, we talked about uh, how this takes many forms a little bit last, uh, you know, you mentioned last week where you, you just mentioned some of them. So it's military costs uh, in addition to that. And then there's also uh, the health costs, uh, you know, in terms of uh, black lung disease. And uh, this, these are things that these are costs that are real. Um, it's becoming increasingly common. We hear about people dying in coal mines. So uh, not in the U.S., but also globally. And so this is something that's uh, you know, there is a, there's a human element to this. Uh, so uh, you can't, I don't think uh, you can ignore these costs anymore. Well, and I can't help but think that those, you know, having some sort of research out there that could, that could actually present that, you know, particularly like the healthcare costs. I mean, you know, my father was a coal miner for 25 years, and, and so I'm very familiar with some of the, you know, the black lung disease situation and, and other healthcare issues, you know, caused by a variety of forms of, you know, extracting fossil fuels. Um, my grandfather, his dad, worked on an oil rig and, and actually was on one that exploded. And so, um, you know, as we look to new forms of, of health care in this country, we certainly have to take a look at the true costs uh, of every energy form, and, and they all have a cost. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, Phyllis and Dexter will be back with us, and we're also going to be including Aaron Lemieux, who is the founder and CEO of Tremont Electric. He's been part of the industry discussions surrounding this report, so we'll be right back with more Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. 
Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just joining us, today we're talking with Phyllis Cotino, the director of the Pew Energy Program, Dexter Gauntlet, who's a research analyst for Pike Research, and Aaron Lemieux, founder and CEO of Tremont Electric. All three are key contributors to a brand new report that's just come out from the Pew Charitable Trust that is talking about why we need a more comprehensive energy plan um, at the federal level in the U.S. and some of the reasons that our U.S. businesses um, are are uh, suffering because of that lack of comprehensive energy uh, plan and focus in the at the federal level. Um, Aaron, I'd like to bring you in on this next question. You know, because when we start talking about uh, public policy and public investments in renewable energy companies, there's a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths because of the high-profile bankruptcies of companies like Solyndra and A123. And, you know, I, you can't blame anybody for feeling like taxpayers kind of got ripped on those uh, investments. How do you think, as someone who's, you know, in the industry, a business leader in the industry, how do you think that the Department of Energy could improve its process for awarding public dollars so we can ensure that these kind of bad investments don't happen again? Well, um, I, I guess I'd like to approach this uh, question from, you know, two different standpoints, which is uh, one from the business perspective and then one for, for the uh, uh, clean energy policy perspective. So uh, first and foremost, um, you know, you really think, uh, need to think of uh, these uh, federal investments into um, these uh, uh, clean energy companies as a portfolio <clears throat> with the understanding that um, you, you, you make the um, best guess at uh, which companies are going to be able to succeed. And with that, um, you, you um, invest in those companies. And certainly not every single company is going to be a winner. I'm sure uh, Warren Buffett would be able to tell you that um, much more <laughs> succinctly than I'm able to. Uh, but, you know, it is an investment. It's an investment portfolio that uh, approach that really needs to be looked at. So, you know, uh, unfortunately, it's, it's just the name of the game. And you, and you really hope that the investments in the other firms that do well are able to offset losses from the ones that don't do so well. Um, you know, from a, a policy perspective, you know, we're, we're asking about Solyndra and we're asking about A123. Um, but, you know, what we're really trying to talk about is having a national clean energy policy. Um, so, you know, by not having that policy in place, uh, we inadvertently added additional risks to these two companies. 
So, you know, that, that just reinforces that, you know, we really need policy to be able to have a stable base to grow these large companies off of. Of course, large companies mean, you know, large taxes and um, also um, uh, large employment numbers, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, if, if I was in charge of the investment portfolio for the DOE, um, you know, I, I would understand that we, we had to suffer some losses, but then I'd also be looking, looking at policy to be able to help grow uh, the other companies that we have already invested in. It's, it's a way to double down on your investment, and it really doesn't cost that much. Phyllis, let me ask you this. I mean, from your perspective, um, a policy perspective, should the U.S. be investing public dollars in actually companies, or what about R&D at the universities and then making that R&D available to companies? What do you think mm-hmm. about that approach? Well, I mean, I think, you know, one of the one of the policy recommendations from our reports is that we need to, to really invest in, in R&D. Um, and so absolutely, that is one of the things that industry has said. And they, they you know, they pointed to the fact that, that the labs could do a better job. They are definitely doing this now, but they could do a better job of inviting in industry so that they could help them on the road to commercialization by driving out costs um, up and down the supply chain. So I think that's um, – you know, I think that is certainly part of the recommendations that we would have for policymakers. But look, I, you know, to Aaron's point as well, if you talk to folks in the venture field, and I understand that the government has a much, you know, they have a, a, a higher um, kind of barrier. They need to have better performance because these are public dollars. But if you talk to anybody in um, in the VC world, they would say that, you know, there's a lot of risk and you're betting on, on a few winners and a few big payoffs. And when we when the Stimulus Act was passed and these investments were made, there was actually loss that was written into – there was anticipation that some companies would fail. And in the early stages of any industry – I mean, I think we talked about this a little bit last um, on your last show. You know, if you look back at the automobile sector, if you look back at kind of the other sectors, there have been times of failure and consolidation. And that is just an example of how, um, you know, the marketplace is working. So I think while the government has suffered some failures, um, they've made a lot of good bets too, um, bets in a sector that we know are growing and we have a lot at stake in. And, you know, after all, this isn't unique to energy. We do this in defense. Um, we do this in in um, in healthcare, um, so in the pharma you know sector. So I think you know government does make significant investments in new and emerging technologies. They've had private partner public partnerships before. The internet um, is another you know IT. Um, so I think you know I, I think what we've done in energy was not um, what the government did in, in energy was um you know was was meant to be targeted and meant to really try and encourage and foster a sector of the economy that is growing and has opportunity and can create jobs and businesses here in the United States. I don't 100% disagree with you, Phyllis, but I'm going to add on my own spin to this. And this mm-hmm. may come from my you know, days as a former military officer. I'm glad you brought up military spending because there's a big difference in what happens to the intellectual property when we invest public dollars in military R&D and what we didn't do with the intellectual property for, say, Solyndra and A123. And that is protected. 
if there's a public investment in these companies that develop some intellectual property because they had public investment in their R&D, the, com- the country <laughs> should be able to keep it. And in the case of, for instance, A123, when that company went bankrupt and went out for auction, a Chinese company won the bid. And so that intellectual property that American taxpayers invested in could be lost to American you know, businesses in the renewable energy sector. So I think, and I would like to get your opinion on this, that that the Department of Energy could improve its process by putting in a proviso that if the companies don't make it commercially, that at least the intellectual property stays stateside if there's going to be a public investment. I don't know. What do you think about that? Is that too constrictive? Uh, well, you know, I, I can't speak uh, as an expert in kind of the investments that the Defense Department has made either through DARPA, um, but I'm sure that the investments that they have made in technologies with major defense contractors, um, while they may be protected in some way, it doesn't mean that those defense contractors haven't been able to use the development dollars that they've they've had and the knowledge and the expertise that they have acquired in terms of developing other products that they're going to sell to to other countries. So um, I'm not sure I kind of uh, buy your argument entirely. Um, you know, I do. You know, sure, would I like to see a one, two, three stay here in the United States? Absolutely, I would. I think that you know we have a fierce competition when it comes to the battery sector, and you know we have lost in the past um, many of our uh, you know our kind of um, leadership in batteries to to Asia. So I would like, I would sure like to see um, us keep our intellectual property here in the United States and, and keep jobs and businesses in the battery sec- advanced battery sector here in the United States because I think that's going to be a big, big, big market in the future. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I guess I don't disagree with your premise that it would be great if we kept all countries here, all, you know, all of the technology that we developed here in the United States and we could manufacture it, but not, you know, we'd have to ask Aaron if he thinks that's the way the market really works. But um, so I, I guess I would defer to him. Well, and Aaron, we'll get back to you on that in just a moment. But knowing that Phyllis is only with us for a couple more minutes, I want to, I want to give you one more, one more question, Phyllis. Sure. Um, you know, we, everybody hopes that our Congress can multitask. Where I'm from in Southern Illinois, we say we hope that they can walk and chew gum at the same time. However, right. <laughs> the reality is, it seems like their heads are in a lot of different places, uh, gun control, uh, a variety of fiscal cliffs. We all thought there was just one. Now we hear from economists there might right. be multiple tiers. Um, you know, there's there's all kinds of new uh, members of the cabinet that have to be confirmed and uh, just all kinds of situations that Congress is dealing with right now. Realistically, how likely is it, do you think, that Congress will pass an energy plan during this term? Well, um, it, there are big, big issues that we have to, I think, that we have to get through. The debt and the deficit are certainly among them, and I think, you know, it's obvious that we're going to have to tackle those first. But I do think that there are opportunities to pass energy policy. Lisa Murkowski, who's the ranking um, Senate minority member on the, the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, is coming out her, with her own energy plan. So she's not, you know, sitting on the sidelines. Um, Senator Ron Wyden, who is the new chairman of 
Senate Natural Energy and Natural Resources Committee, um, you know, is certainly thinking about ways he can work together with Lisa Murkowski to craft some legislation that he thinks could move through the Senate. So we've, you know, we've certainly seen that they are going to work together in a collegial and bipartisan manner. If you look over at the House, uh, I mean, I think we have a higher hurdle with passing policy over there, but I think, you know, there's broad agreement that we can certainly do, do some efficiency legislation and some other things. So while there are big issues that I think Congress is grappling with, it doesn't mean that the committees of jurisdiction don't think that they can't, you know, work on these things. Um, they can't get out <clears throat> bills that can be examined. And, and I think there is a real, um, there is a real desire to kind of move forward with legislation that they believe can be passed. And so I think you're going to see probably smaller proposals to get at some of these issues. But, you know, energy is one of the most important areas of, of the economy. And um, we certainly have a lot at stake. And, you know, I know that folks like Aaron are talking to their congressman and senator all the time um, to try and encourage them to do more. And so I think that the more that the the industry does that, the more conversations. You know, if you are if you're a, a voter out there and you think that that this is something that Congress should do, you should pick up the phone. You should go write a letter. You should go see your member of Congress and tell them to get busy on it. So, I you know I I don't want to be Pollyanna, but I I think that you know we are going to grapple with these with these bigger issues um, after we get past past the debt and the deficit. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to say nothing can be done. I you know fundamentally I I think government can can walk and chew gum. So <laughs> do I think we're going to have a huge comprehensive national energy policy come out in the next two years? Probably not. Do I think we can get to kind of smaller pieces of legislation and pass them? I do. Well, you're closer to the vortex of the beltway than I am, so I'm going to trust in your assessment and and remain hopeful and optimistic. Um, you said a mouthful when you said energy is the very backbone of our economy. It couldn't be more important. And so um, I'm hopeful that our listeners will get out there, contact their Congress members as well, and urge for some action on an energy plan for the U.S. that makes sense going forward. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to dig even deeper into some policy issues and some uh, portions of the report that kind of surprised me. And so Dexter and Aaron will be joining us during the next couple segments to talk about those issues. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I'm really excited to bring up this next question, and it's going to be for our uh, our research analyst, Dexter Gauntlet, because what we're going to be talking about is really, really a huge issue, um, and it's one that I think we could all stand to get more enlightened upon so that we can talk intelligently to our congressmen when we urge them to take action um, that will bolster our renewable energy industry in the U.S. Dexter, what I'd like for you to talk about is the production tax credit, the impact of that, and uh, make us smart on the issue. Okay, well... Uh, it's a uh, very, very uh, important piece of the U.S. wind uh, energy industry. It's been around for uh, about almost 30 years um, in various uh, segments. And uh, in modern era, the last 10 years, it's both been on for two years and off for two years, on for two years and off for two years. And uh, it, came, it always seems to come down to the last minute. Uh, Congress seems to pass some extension of it. Uh, in when when you kind of least expect it, and this year was no exception. So the uh, what it is is a 2.2 or a 2.2 cents per kilowatt hour uh, tax credit for uh, wind farms that lasts for uh, t- for 10 years. And what it uh, enables investors to do is have to make sure that they'll get a return on an, on investment. And so. Uh, the change that happened uh, in this most recent uh, piece of legislation, the key difference is that uh, instead of uh, wind farms needing to be in service, which basically means uh, at least a portion of the wind farm needs to be up and online generating electrons to the grid, uh, mm-hmm. it means that the, the change has been that the wind farm just needs to be under construction. And so oh. that can mean things like building roads to the site, setting the foundation, that kind of thing. And so right now, uh, there are about uh, 8 gigawatts uh, worth of wind farms so that are uh, under construction in the U.S. So to give you a little bit of perspective on how much wind that is, uh, the total U.S. wind to date uh, is about 60 gigawatts uh, mm-hmm. installed in the U.S. right now, utility scale. And so... There you have maybe another eight. Uh, at the end of 2012, the f- final numbers are coming out. But it's because there's such a big rush, because there's uncertainty around 
whether the PTC would be extended or not, there was a huge effort on behalf of wind developers to get projects online so they could qualify for the PTC uh, in 2012 in the event that it was not extended. So mm -hmm. we have a huge glut right now of wind farms that are going to be coming online. The, there'll probably be a range between 8 and 12 gigawatts coming online uh, at the, as the final tally being for 2012. Uh, and then next year we're going to see another enormous push to uh, install more wind turbine because of the extension. Let me ask you a question about the production tax credit. Is there any proviso in it that any part of the um, hardware that's involved in these wind farms be American-made, or does it matter? Uh, I don't believe that the PTC uh, extension includes rules like that. Uh, okay. The uh, ARA, uh, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, uh, did include that component, and I think the percentage was about 30 uh, percent mm -hmm. of the materials needed to be sourced from the U.S. Mm -hmm. Aaron, I bet you'd love to see something like 100 percent sourced from the U.S. <laughs> what are well, your thoughts on the production tax credit? Well, well uh, getting to that 100 percent comment, I, I can tell you that we can most certainly uh, uh, source 100 um, uh, percent for, for these uh, clean technologies here in the United States. Uh, my, my, my perspective uh, on the tax credit is um, uh, this is something that really needs to be consistent in the policy. Um, it, what, what we end up seeing when there isn't consistency is essentially a ripple of activity. Uh, it, it just sort of surges back and forth. There's sometimes that, that it appears that, you know, we're, we're moving quickly on these things, and then, and then there's other times where, where everything's completely stalled. Um, I, I can tell you of you know one example uh, uh, here in the, in the uh, Cleveland, Ohio area, uh, where there's a, an organization called Leadco, which is a nonprofit organization that's trying to um, deploy the uh, deploy a uh, wind farm in Lake Erie. Um, so this would be offshore wind and, and actually you know uh, freshwater. Um, you know, it's 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 a pretty radical idea, but you know, technically, it it really looks like it's feasible. But being able to to raise funds for something that that has an additional layer of risk, uh, being able to fall back on things like the production uh, tax credit for wind uh, would be very very helpful for them to be able to to move this revolutionary new project forward. Um, so, from the, the business perspective, you know. What we're really looking for uh, in the national policy for clean energy is just give us consistency. Um, stop this pushing and pulling. Um, we, we, we just need a steady base to be able to build from. And that's, mm -hmm. that's really all that we're asking for here. Well, and if I remember correctly from our, our uh, show last week, um, other more traditional forms of energy have been able to get that kind of consistent policy. Uh, why the disparity between the the kind of policy that they're able to achieve and the renewable energy sector. Well, because uh, uh, sorry, sorry, you mind if I jump in for a sec, sir? Please do. All right. Um, uh, you know, from from the business perspective, you know what what we're seeing is you know the the politicizing of um, of uh, the clean energy industry. And, you know, a part of that is, is, is sort of this fear-mongering approach that if we're going to be adding um, clean technologies to our grid, well, then we have absolutely positively have to take something else away. And, and that happens to be these traditional jobs that have been receiving subsidies for a very, very long time. And, and, and I think just, um, you know, that, that thought is wrong. And, 
You don't have to take something away to add something that's, that's new and revolutionary and good. Um, it, it, these are the things that are, are helping to build a nation. And, you know, energy demand is always going up. It, yeah. it just reinforces you don't have to take something away. Every, everybody needs to, you know, sort of get on the same team and understand that, you know, a large part of this is, is about our nation and about the future that we're all trying to build together. Mm-hmm. Dexter, you were going to jump in there. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, I mean, I think uh, we've we've made kind of the, the I was going to make a similar point, uh, but that it's, uh, you know, th- there there's some other models that are happening that are really exciting where we've been primarily talking about uh, when it comes to wind, large utility-scale wind farms. So that, these are the ones where you're driving out. Uh, here in the Pacific Northwest, you drive through the Columbia River Gorge, and you can see some pretty amazing wind farms on the way through. Uh, mm-hmm. But on uh, switching technologies, technologies to solar, what we're seeing uh, is that it's actually a more distributed, smaller-scale model that's really taking off, where individual homeowners are installing solar on their roofs in larger quantities. Um, you know, big box retailers are even uh, getting into this and being a major driver of it. So mm-hmm. in Germany, just for comparison, it's about 98% of the installations are on uh, individual small-scale uh, plots of land, their houses, their farms, etc. And in their model, uh, which is not based on a tax credit, it's based on a feed-in tariff, that means these individual homeowners are getting paid for the amount of power uh, that they produce and send onto the grid. And mm-hmm. there's a premium that they get for using it on-site. And in the U.S., we have taken the tax credit approach, which means that uh, somebody has to have what they call the tax appetite, uh, meaning they have to have profits in order for them to want to take a tax credit or else the tax credits aren't, aren't, aren't useful for them. But, uh, it, you know, it's just a different model that I'm trying to highlight here, where in Europe it's much more about uh, community-owned systems, individual-owned systems that, um, you know, where they can actually make money on these things, whereas mm-hmm. in the U.S., when we take a big, a larger utility-scale approach, it's more of a, a more corporate-led uh, environment. Now, the two, of course, aren't mutually exclusive, and a lot of um, uh, really innovative tools and financing are helping to make solar uh, more commonplace and affordable, uh, where you can actually pay the same amount for uh, solar uh, electrons coming into your home than uh, for your grid uh, dirty energy coming into your home. Mm-hmm. And so in, if you're in high-cost markets in the West Coast, uh, you can get uh, solar on your roof today for uh, the same amount of cost in a monthly payment uh, where you don't have to pay upfront costs but you pay the same, a solar company like Sun Edison or Solar City uh, the same amount that you would pay for uh, your normal grid dirty tide electricity, and that's locked in for 20 years. And mm-hmm. so over the course of 20 years, as history has shown, your average co- retail cost of electricity continues to go up. You are locked in with solar on your roof producing clean energy, pr- providing a, a large share of your usage for 20 years. So you will be saving as that, over time, that delta of savings increases. And that's uh, a game-changing difference today uh, that that is going to continue to enable these small systems to take off in the U.S. Well, and those power purchase agreements in California are are terrific, but you know, if we had more of a competitive feed-in tariff situation where 
people were actually paid as if they they were generators, you know, power generators. Then the the added incentive to that kind of public policy is that you get to stay up with the market price of of whatever electrons are being sold for. And it incentivizes whether it's, you know, homeowners or probably more likely um, corporate, uh, you know, big box retailers or other corporate entities to put up as much solar as they can afford because if they end up producing more that they can use, they can actually generate some revenue on that. And, and that's the, the piece of public policy that, um, we're not seeing everywhere. And I think that really could help. I don't know what you think about that, Dexter. Yeah, there's, uh, we're seeing different pieces of that come into place. Uh, states and cities are experimenting with it. And uh, it's been wildly successful where it's been implemented. Uh, mm-hmm. There's uh, the key uh, is again, this is you know we're we're not taking a cheerleader approach to this. We want good public policy like everyone else. Um, the key in Germany and other uh, European countries has been a long-term phase-down, step-down uh, tariff. So that means that say it's um, you know 20 cents per kilowatt hour. As the tariff, uh, you know, year one, you would ratchet it down to 18 cents in year two, 16 cents in year three, et cetera. And now what we're seeing is the uh, same thing in the U.S. market where uh, the win- hopefully uh, we'll have, if we're going to uh, agree on a long-term extension of uh, a production tax credit, uh, that it can be extended over the similar type fashion where you're looking at five years, six years, and then eventually it's phased out. So you start at 2.2 cents per kilowatt hour, and you phase it down to 2, then to 1.8, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That way you have investors have that long-term predictability. The companies are requesting that because that way they can make the investments and build their business plan around that. Instead of on a you know, one-year increment having to say, okay, let's ramp it up. Oh, let's shut it back down. That's just mm-hmm. not effective for business planning. So now I think we're seeing a lot of the discussion in Washington is going to focus around that long-term phase out of a wind production tax credit, but we'll see. Right. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but there's much more right around the corner. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you all could join us. You know, if you've ever asked yourself the question, what do we need to do in the United States to see renewable energy take hold and become a significant part of our energy portfolio? This show is answering that question. And we've been talking about some of the U.S. public policy issues that need to be addressed um, and how that has had an impact on the financing of clean energy enterprises. But there are some other challenges that clean energy companies face with financing. And Erin, I want to ask you, what could be done to create a better environment for raising the capital that companies like yours need in order to realize the full potential of our energy sector, our clean energy sector? Well, um, you know, I, I, I guess um, to be able to answer this uh, question correctly, it, it's best for me to paint a picture of what this area actually looks like, especially for a company like ours. Um, you know, early stage, um, you know, intellectual property driven, um, uh, moving into venture capital type of area, and um, and specifically in, in the clean technology sector. And and what we're used to seeing is that there's a lot of other early stage or startup companies um, that, that are all focused in on um, IT and apps and, and, and lots of the, these other things that don't actually have a manufactured component that goes along with them. Um, you know, a lot of these clean technology companies ha- have a significantly higher uh, early stage capital requirement uh, than a lot of our technology brethren, uh, primarily because we need to make things. Um, you know, we, we also, you know, need to spend time prototyping and, um, you know, um, you know uh, basically having failures in the lab so that we can rebuild things and, and be able to understand things better. And, and that also interjects an additional layer of uncertainty for companies like ours, um, which means that, you know, it, it can be very difficult for us to be able to, to raise capital. Um, and what what can also happen in areas um, like that is that um, you know the people that uh, have founded the company um, are essentially uh, diluted out of the company rather quickly, either in the first or the second round of funding, um, which which basically you know um, uh, lowers uh, the incentive for a lot of people uh, to be able to take these technologies out of the lab or out of their basement and, and you know go out and seek the capital and. Um, you know, essentially take a, take all the punishment um, that um, entrepreneurs um, end up getting uh, just to be able to, to bring their idea and their, their technology and their concept out. Um, you know, when, when we're looking, you know, further downstream, you know, we, earlier we were talking about the bankruptcies at uh, Solyndra and A123. And I, I remember just a couple of years, years ago seeing that uh, A123 was the darling of the clean tech industry, mm-hmm. uh, but only to end up seeing them going bankrupt after a while. And, and um, you know, uh, that just sort of leads us back into this, you know, national clean energy policy that, you know, we, we need to bring certainty into these areas by, by simply just bringing certainty to them. It's, mm-hmm. it's really just that simple. 
Dexter, from a like maybe the the banking industry or you know other financial mechanisms, um, what kinds of things do you see creating a better environment for raising capital? Uh, well, I think the general turnaround in the economy is the number one driver of this. In the the wind industry was hampered by uh, uh, you know that kind of like I mentioned in the last segment uh, a loss of tax appetite for. Um, the uh, production tax credit because it is transferable. And uh, so now with the economy turning around, that's the number one driver. Uh, number two, uh, you know, liquidity is, uh, has improved significantly. Uh, we're seeing a lot more deals getting done. Uh, so I think a general confidence is, is, is back, and so that you know, confidence really drives this as well. So, um, and then certain tools around that we've mentioned before, uh, there's uh, something – Crazy! I, I don't know. It's a, a million dollars a day going into third-party financing uh, for distributed solar PV uh, now. So I mean, it's just a hotbed for investment there. So um, you know, it's it's really picking back up again. Mm-hmm. That's that's great to hear. I mean, um, th- I think that's one of the most overlooked pieces. Um, if you're not actually a business leader, you know, a lot of people don't realize what goes into um, asking the banks to. You know, as ABBA would put it, take a chance on me. Uh, and so I think that, that uh, that's encouraging news. You know, in the report, Dexter, you d- touched on this a bit. Um, in some countries, installing renewable energy is already the most cost-effective type of electricity they can interject into their society because it allows them to sort of leapfrog over the cost of putting in transmission lines and instead create microgrids. Um, how... Does this reality impact the business opportunity for American companies selling the hardware that they need in order to do that? Sure. Well, uh, in the developing world context, uh, your your statement's true. The uh, that is, it's on one hand, it's the uh, biggest no-brainer uh, out there. If you're competing with diesel generators to uh, generate electricity, uh, that uh, I think we've crossed that uh, line of solar PV, even unsubsidized, uh, will be more cost-effective for than uh, diesel generator anywhere in the world today. So mm-hmm. uh, that's a monumental step forward compared to even you know five six years ago. And because of that, we're seeing growth in new markets: uh, South Africa, Brazil, um, even you know. Uh, larger sub-Saharan Africa, where a lot of the grid infrastructure does not, uh, is not installed, we're seeing uh, you know, major deployment happening at the not only community scale level, but also uh, larger scale utility level as well. So what it means, though, is that there's going to be increasing competition. Uh, I mean, even more increasing competition because countries, uh, and say take solar, for example, uh, China right now, uh, is continuing to push its market uh, activities into near, nearby India as well. And so the same dynamics that we're facing here in terms of uh, international competition uh, don't go away just by going overseas, even if the business opportunity is better, because it's still equally as competitive. Mm-hmm. And Aaron, from your perspective, what kind of um, U.S. public policy or other assistance would help American businesses become more competitive in that type of a market condition in developing countries? 
Uh, well, um, I, I can actually speak to a very, very similar um, uh, phenomenon as this, which is uh, with the um, uh, telecom industry. You yeah. know, if you if you imagine yourself in an emerging market, um, you know, why are you going to try to um, you know uh, put landline telephone lines you know, <laughs> uh, down the side of the road when it, it's much easier for people just to be able to to get themselves cell phones? Exactly. Um, and, and that's that's actually where our product, the Empower Peg, comes into play because um, uh, what ends up happening is is that a lot of these people need to walk for um, a significant distance, sometimes up to two days, to be able to charge these phones so so that they can have um, ha- have their uh, communication ability. And um, uh, this is this is a market that uh, my company actively sells into, which is how do we how do we get the energy into these phones? Um, and so one of the biggest barriers that, that we've encountered is, um, and, and this is with a you know, uh, made-in-the-USA product, of being able to drive our costs low enough so that um, we can deal with all the duties and the transportation costs of getting our domestically made product into the emerging markets. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel strongly that, that there needs to be something there to be able to help us do something along those lines. Well, I agree with you, and I, I can't help but think too, you know, if we if we learn how to do this well in developing countries, I, I read a report this morning that people who were impacted by Hurricane Sandy, some are still without power and they're freezing, and that you know if we had more microgrid. Um, infrastructure focus here in the U.S., maybe that wouldn't be the case. And so I'm hopeful that that what we learn as, you know, business leaders, you know, going out into these emerging uh, economies to create microgrids will come back home as well because we really need to be focusing on our own energy infrastructure and updating it as well. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us on Go Green Radio. Thanks to all of our listeners for joining us, as you always do so loyally. We are going to be back same time, same place next week. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.